one parent, two kids, 423 national park sites. This is Expedition National Parks. Dispatches and stories from one family's journey to discover the natural, historical, and cultural treasures of the United States. So that that huge expanse of people all came here at one time and all had to work through this whole thing together. And it was, it was that that caused acceleration of social change. And aren't we lucky for that? <laughs> Ranger Betty Reed Soskin began her National Park Service career at age 85. As she mentioned in an interview, if we don't know where we started, we have no way of knowing how far we've come, she says. That's the reason that at 85, I became a National Park Ranger that history was so in danger of being totally forgotten. In addition to being the National Park Service's oldest ranger, she is one of the most accomplished. She is an author, singer, entrepreneur, activist, and civil rights pioneer. She's inspired generations and now is the subject of multiple documentaries. Before suffering a stroke in 2019, her regular talks at her home park of Rosie the Riveter World War II National Home for National Historical Park attracted huge crowds. Five months after the stroke, she returned to doing those talks on Wednesdays in January 2020. It was on one of those Wednesdays that we had the great fortune to attend and meet her. What follows is the conversation we had with her, and then with the wider group as people joined. We hope you feel like you are joining us in the room and learn as much from her as we did. I worked, well this is the only park I've worked at. Okay. I've been here for about 15 years. Um, I started at 85. Oh my gosh. And now I'm 98. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I started when the park started. Okay. Which meant that I started as a consultant to the parks and um, worked at for about oh, four years uh, on a four year contract. And then went from that to being a ranger. But, um, I had no intention of becoming a ranger. <laughs> I, was, I was very content. <laughs> and most people don't start a career at the fourth grade, you know, another yeah. grade 85. Wow. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't, wasn't, I didn't ever retire. Mm -hmm. I was still working for the state, and when this park started, and. Just plumbed on the when it was starting, but I happened to be um, working in one of the union halls um, when the uh, war was on. So I was actually twenty. You were twenty. Yeah. When the war started. Yeah, and so that meant that 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 my memory was pretty concurrent with the war, and oh. so that that really catapulted me into be into prominence. <laughs> the unions were not racially integrated, and so I was in a, in a black union hall. Um. And that was simply keeping up with where people were living. And, uh, yeah. I was in the union hall in Richmond. Okay. Oh, I see. That was, that was the, the one time I, I really was in Richmond, but uh, it was a nine to five kind of thing. I wasn't wasn't a part of the community at all. I remember the building 
It was a very small building um, made of metal, probably it was thrown together as most things were at that time. Uh, it was the, the home of the Boilermakers Auxiliary, which was um, um, the Black Union, and it was nowhere near the shipyards. It was in inland, so that I never did see a ship under construction, nor a ship being launched. Uh, that was all, you know, completely rumors to me. Um, I went in every day in a carpool, came home at night to Berkeley, which is where I lived. She also spoke about the Richmond shipyards. During World War II, more ships were built there than any other shipyard, and as many as three ships produced in a single day. There were four Kaiser shipyards here in Richmond. Um, one, two, three, and four. And two is where the, um, the current Marina Park is. Um, there Hello, how are you? Great, how are you? Fine. You can't get rid of me. I'm with you yes. all the time. <laughs> Hi, how are you? How are you? Fine, how are you? Long time no see. How are you doing? Fine. Excuse me, you were in the film, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Along with many other people. Autographs, autographs. Autograph? Yeah, and where was I? Uh, I was just, you were talking about number two. Yeah, yeah number two was 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 the only shipyard that was that was that was um, kept uh, intact oh. until this park was till 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 Marina Bay Park was, was being put, going from being a park into being housing. Mm -hmm. uh, hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, we just came by to greet you. We've been on your tour in the past. Well, thank you very yeah. much. So happy to see you. You look the same. <laughs> I, I really, I, you know, I really don't feel the same. Yeah. I feel like I'm, 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 I don't know. There are still, um, Shipyard One is still, um, Visible. Uh, three was and became the port of Richmond. So it was the only one that was built that remains, and it's where the Red Oak Victory is is um, moored. And it's of course pretty much as it was. It's been completely restored. So it's you know, capable of visiting. And I don't know where we are. Where, where were you if, if you went out at night after work to hear music? Yeah. Where were you going? What were the places you went to? I was going, let's see. The war broke out in January of, of, of in December of December seventh, nineteen forty one. My mother's birthday. <laughs> yeah, was it? Yeah. 
Oh, my God, what a way to celebrate. No, her original birthday. Yeah. She was born in 1917. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, because I was married uh, in the following May, the 24th. It's my birthday. Is that your birthday? Me and Bob Yeah, And, and um, we were, I, I'm not sure that we were going out very much because of the, the situation. There were, there were blackouts. You could get caught out away from home. And that discouraged a lot of night doings. So that we didn't, I don't remember that, that there were many activities. Um, it was also true that, that almost 75% of the people by the time the war was over were from out of state. Uh, the population of Richmond itself was only 23,000 at the time that the war broke out and went to 130,000 by the time it ended, three and a half years later. And so you can see that there were people coming in constantly. Um, so that there was no way for us who were already here in place to absorb what was going on. People were sleeping in shifts in certain places, right? Living in a certain place and they went to work and somebody else would sleep while they... Yes. There were beds being rented out so that somebody would sleep in the, in the daytime and somebody else would sleep in bed at night. Like Uber drivers now who come in from Sacramento and all that, they all have one bed. They were coming from everywhere, mm -hmm. coming from every place in the country. They were just, Kaiser did his major um, recruiting in the five southern states of Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana, so that the majority of people were southerners. So that completely changed the landscape, the social landscape of what was here. And um, that was enough to get used to. Um, we were being African-American, felt like strangers in our own land. Um, so it was rather remarkable. Um, but combined, the combined forces were making any kind of, of adjustments impossible until the war was over. So most of us were living in, in a various kind of arrangement. The, the um, soldiers, at, the sailors rather, at, at Port Chicago were entertained in their homes because the the unions were, the um, USO was not yet racially integrated and there wouldn't be a black USO so that so that we were my husband who works for the San the Berkeley I believe we got they work, he worked for the Berkeley Recreation Department as a playground director and would bring kids home uh, at 
two o'clock on Saturday afternoons, and they would stay, uh, and we would invite neighbors in who would come, and we would listen to records and, and talk about music and all kinds of other things. And the day of the explosion at, at what's it, 1047 on July 17th in 1942, when those ships went up, two Kaiser ships were exploded here at Port Chicago, and 320 men were lost. Um, most people didn't even know about it because it was a, a, a closely guarded secret of the Navy. Sabotage or mistake? It was what? Was it sabotage or was it a mistake? No, it was it was an absolute mystery. No one recognized you know, what had happened. They were simply vaporized. They, they, there was nothing left. And didn't you host some of those guys? Was it the same day even? That you it was the same day that, that um, sailors had been at our house and the dozen of them I went back at twelve at five thirty. Uh, they had a curfew, and that night at ten forty-seven, the ships went up, and we never did realize. We well, to this day, I don't have any idea. You know what happened, or which of those men were lost. Um, they were. Janet. <laughs> Hello, Janet. How are you? <laughs> yeah. So that there, there, there was. I think that two and a half year period had lots of of those kinds of incidents. Um, they were sometimes explained and sometimes not. And that one wasn't. It, um, I think, made the local papers here. No, I don't think so. I don't think it. I don't. I. I think that we thought that it was Japanese who had bombed them, but it was not discovered until much later that they, they were not. Yeah. It's possible that. It was an accident, right? That maybe somebody dropped something that exploded and set it all off, too? Or? Well, those, the problems were that the men were not trained. Mm -hmm. They were, all, all of the, the men were, were African, I'm sorry. All of the men were non-commissioned, they were non-commissioned. Mm -hmm. And all of the officers were white. All of the, the men who loaded ships were black, and there was simply no, no training ever given to anyone. And they, uh, 50 of those men were tried uh, in a single trial. If you can imagine. That was because they refused to go back to work? Because they refused to go back and load the ships. They were ordered back to work immediately. 
and they wouldn't go back without without training. Yeah. Joe Smalls was was the old man of the group. He was about 24, and was probably the uh, he was the speaker for the group. Um, Fifty of those men refused to go back and were were tried and found guilty of mutiny. Court martial, right? Yes, yeah. court martial. Uh, and have remained in jeopardy ever since. They they're no more left. They're gone now. Mm. But they tried as long as they lived mm. for, for to, to be cleared. And only one of them was under Clinton, um, Kenny Meeks from Los Angeles, um, was the only one who accepted a pardon. The rest of them did not believe that they had done anything wrong, and so they would not accept a pardon. And the group here at Port Chicago who has been working ever since on, uh, on um, exoneration uh, have tried. And we have not gotten them posthumously exonerated. So is, is, are those efforts through an NGO or through their families for the seeking the exoneration? No, these are, these are people who are simply interested in the case. So they just kind of work together and they have a coalition? Yes. It's called Friends of Port Chicago. And they are online and you can look them up. Um, And they, I think, I think the head of that group had a relative who was in in the, the, among the 50. And so she's been trying to get them exonerated. But how did we get onto that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hosting. Yeah. We're, we're all equally unaware of how we yeah. get there. <laughs> From what I had asked you, what you did at night, oh. and that led to oh, okay. the men oh, being yeah. okay. place, and right. that it was yeah. curfews. That, that, and that reminded that. me, yeah. yeah. Of yeah. what happened at night. Yeah. Is it true that the sound of the explosion could be heard along all over the area? Oh yes, yes. And yet people just had no idea what was happening. No, it, 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 we were living in Berkeley, and we heard it. So that I'm not sure how far away it was. It was heard. It was felt as far away as Reno, Nevada. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. It measured on the Richter scale, mm-hmm. but back there. So that, yeah, it, it, it was it was quite something. So, I mean, this question actually applies to both parks. Then, what, what do you think the role of the park is in educating the public about? Like these issues, like the, I think the, the disaster, the existence of, of of Zoo Park, of making having it declared um, a, a national site, has brought the uh, 
case to the attention of the public. And it now has been a park for 15 years. Um, it came into being under uh, Obama um, because parks are designated. Um, and I, I'm not sure. He didn't. He didn't. He he wasn't in long enough to have gotten gotten the exoneration, and there's no hope of getting it through at this point. <laughs> but but just in general, like for, apart from Fort Chicago, um, which is a great example of, mm -hmm. of, of not raising the issue, but like even Rosie the River or the, these other parks, like. Why are they important in kind of? Why are they like, important in educating the public, or are they important? Like, what role do like these national park sites serve, like Rosie the River? Yeah. Hi there. How are you? Can we get some more chairs down here? Thank you. Yeah, they 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 are, they are important because they tell the story of the country, of how we how we were formed. And they're always coming into being. Um, there are constantly um, things that people say, you know, here we need this designated. And I think that's happened about 419 times. And so that, so that now, you know, there are places that are set aside uh, that tell about who we are. Yeah, I think I think that those are important. Talking people drive by on the highway, and not knowing any of this history. Right? They do. Without the parks, they might just drive by on the highway and not have any idea of the history. Of the yes. Yes. And your speeches on top of the film are always just. Have you seen her speak after the films? She shows the film, which is the institution's film, right? Yes. And then you tell your story, which. Mm -hmm. I used to have to bite my thumb off to keep from crying. <laughs> so powerful. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So that that's enough about Port Chicago. No. <laughs> do, we, do, we need, do we need something more? No. And now it is time for our outdoor organization features. During the month of February, we are sharing the work of an outdoor organization, SIAC. See you at the top as part of continued community effort to showcase organizations while working towards social justice and more inclusive public lands. SIAT was founded by a mother and two daughters. Teamhood, Marsha, Erica, and Ebony Hood, with a mission to increase access to outdoor spaces for black and brown youth, all simultaneously creating inspiring joy in places that haven't been traditionally safe or welcoming to people of color. To accomplish this goal, SIAT organizes year-round outdoor programming for youth and adults. You Matter Study Abroad in Leadership Program and Get Black Outside Excursions. You can follow SIAT on Instagram at SIAT underscore CLE. S-Y-A-T-T underscore CLE. Is there anyone that has a question about Rosie? How many people were you working with when you when you were how how, was, how big was the workforce of women? Probably fifteen or twenty, I think. Um, 
In your office? You yeah, in, in our office. Mm -hmm. um, there were thousands working in the shipyard, but we never saw them. Um, when, when the park was first formed, I simply didn't understand. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that there were that many people. Um, because I simply not seen during the war, but but I and I, I think I've seen them since in film, but I didn't ever see them in real life. You worked in San Francisco for a while, right? No, I didn't. well I worked that was that was before I was. I was trying to figure yeah. out. That was first, and then you left that job. I left that job to come here um, because I would, I did. My parents didn't want me to, to be caught in San Francisco during a blackout, mm -hmm. and so I came, transferred. But was there also a discrimination issue though in San Francisco? My office, I don't think it's there anymore. I think it was simply a, something of the war. I think I don't. I think that it was. It, I was working in the office where there were bar and flag files, where we would file pink and blue cards against names of people who had taken taken um, examinations. And if there was a pink card, which was um, no. It could not be hired, uh, or blue cards, which was hold. You cannot. This this demands further investigation. For instance, if you were seen, if your car was seen parked somewhere near um, uh, um, known bun being, you you would be flagged. Um, and they would have to check to see whether or not you were actually a member of the Bund. The Bund being German um, underground. Park near where, Betty? If it was parked near, the car was parked near some. If a park was, if your car was parked near a Bund meeting, which the Bund being an underground German. Oh. Uh, Sabotage group. Okay. How how many bunds were there that they knew about? I have no idea. Did, how many? But there were. Be? Yes, there would. They, it would have been an issue at that time. So that my brother-in-law, for instance, had a car parked. The reason I'm speaking about that at all is because. He was parked near a near a Bund meeting in Vallejo, and I was filing cards, and he turned up, and I knew that he wasn't a member of the Bund, but I wasn't sure uh, that he knew. Of course, we were sworn to secrecy. I think this this must have been an, an offshoot of, of the FBI. Because I, I remember sitting in this basement 
where there are lots and lots of long tables, each of them having cards, and many people who were filing and finding them and choosing who would be hired and who would not be. And I don't think that anyone knew that. I didn't work there for very long. I, I transferred to, San, to Oakland to the Leamington Hotel where there were, and that was the Air Force who took over the Leamington in Oakland on Franklin Street, I think it was, where, where I don't remember what the nature of the work was. But I do know that it was, it was important work. Yes? Hey, I, I recall one of your talks, and I guess that I've seen in some of the films where if you were, uh, if you were not white, you could not be hired, or you could not get benefits, or what? No. How, did, how, did, how was, at the Union Hall, how, how was that? No, you could, you could only be hired by the Air Force if you were black to, hide, to work in the restrooms or in the canteen. You could only be hired. To work in? In, in, in either the, the, the mess halls, okay. serving food, or, or uh, uh, in the restrooms. I don't remember what you would be doing in restrooms. I do know that there were people there. Um, and that's the only conditions under which you could be hired. And you would have a conditional hiring. You were not hired permanently. Right. You were hired as as a, as a, as a in individual job. Um, I don't know how long those things lasted. I don't know whether they were they were they would have been the part of the national attitude during the first part of the war. I don't remember whether they would have been a part of, of um, policy after the war was, before the war ended. I don't think this would, would have been true. Kaiser hired from those five southern states? Yes. So, excuse my ignorance, they were white or they were white employees or? No, they were all, they were, they were all kinds of people. Okay. Yes. So, because hired, well, if you knew the sequence in which people were hired, mm -hmm. there would have been men who were too old to fight, mm -hmm. followed by boys who were too young to be drafted. Um, there was, then there were married women, then there were single women, and in 1943, the first black men who were hired to do the heavy lifting with the women at the bed bottom board. And then you got to 1944, and black women were trained to be welders. Um, so the, so the, so the social norms were being changed the whole time so that, so that the conditions under which you were hired at the beginning were not 
same conditions by the end. It was simply being changed. But, but in the changing, um, there was lots and lots happening. Right. And you said that this kind of influx of Southerners kind of had, had changed kind of like... It changed, it changed the entire climate right. of this area. And in, did they bring kind of more... I mean, because the, the South was very different than California, even though there were a lot of discrimination here. I yes. Mean, did they bring... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They would, the South would have, would have brought in the whole system of racial segregation. So that, and they were, the four Kaiser shipyards would have, would have, would have been, would have been changed by, by that. Um, I think that the reason that the Bay Area is so untypical of the rest of the, of the nation in that way is because of the, 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 the problems that were worked out here. There was no way for anyone to, there was no, no time to work from the top down. People were working out as they went along. And so that they got through the, the whole racial thing um, much, much faster than the rest of the country did. And still, I'm still expressing that. You can, you can be here in the Bay Area and go into other parts of the country and you have no idea you know, why that would be. But I think that Kaiser, though he, so it wasn't Kaiser, obviously, but the fact that people had to work it out. There was no time for anything else. Yes. Was some of it because it was moving so fast because of the influx of the population to that was needed to build the ships and to, you know, Of course. It absolutely. Moved so, from like from like ten thousand to a hundred thousand in like a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Like that, so. Yeah. I was telling them before you came that the that the city of Richmond's population was only twenty three thousand in nineteen forty four. 45, and in 19, I'm sorry, that was in 1941, 41. and by the time, so that that huge expanse of people all came here at one time, and all had to work through this whole thing together, and it was, it was that that caused acceleration of social change. And aren't we lucky for that? <laughs> I, I am so thrilled by what happened during that time. Um, it, it was not something that, that we could prepare for. Um, my parents, for instance, would, would, were absolutely com completely comfortable 
they had adapted. They had were obviously this is what they could expect. Um, we were not as children. We were fighting against what we could see was wrong. But there was a whole generation of people fighting against that. Um, and I, I think that the fact that that, that that fight is still not, not, certainly not gone, but it certainly is a lot better. I know you were too young to know about it personally when you first moved here, right? You were six years old? Yeah, I was six years old. Uh, but do you know what your, how your family came from? Well, I guess you have family here then, right? Yes. When you moved here. I was going to say how you went from coming with cardboard suitcases or whatever to having a home, you know, what, what that was like. But you got probably put up, I guess, initially by your family. That was we came out of New Orleans which was um, a city long before this was the country. <laughs> it was one of the oldest places in, I think, St. Augustine, Florida, precedes New Orleans. So it had gone through um, being under King George, under the monarch of, of, of Spain. Um, it had gone through, and this was all before the Revolutionary War, so the property was owned by blacks. Um, I didn't go through a rural period, nor did my parents. Um, my great-grandfather, I think, was, was the son of a my great-grandmother was herself a slave. I don't know what their lives would have been like. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I do know that, that the, owning, the owning of property would not have been Strange. But Treme, in New Orleans, the Treme district was very, very successful African American area, right? The Treme district? Huh? The Treme? Yes. Up to a point, right? And then it got the undermined. Yeah. 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 The yes. Treme. But up until that point, it was very successful. The Treme. Yeah, they must have been so private. So it's too private for too many black folks, and they just burned it down. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. like Tulsa. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, that that was our home. The Treme. Yeah. There were there there are areas of the Treme which are beautiful. But um but the Treme is is much much like the rest of the well, some of the nice area in Treme now has freeways kind of cutting through it now. Yeah. They've, they've cut right through the, the city. Yeah. Um, in fact, my parents, my father's brother, 
has a funeral home that's on Treme, in the Treme, that um, was the beginnings of the um, uh, jazz funerals mm -hmm. back in the 1800s. Um, and it's still going. But right, if you just go out of his door, there's a freeway that went right down, right, right through the property. So that, that that has been used as a way to break up real black people's property. The, the fact the floods that, that brought us to California came um, September. No, it was it was spring in 1927, and my folks lost everything because that was the year that the, the city fathers in New Orleans chose to bomb the levees to save the Garden District and Upper St. Charles Avenue. Um, and they, they bombed the levees, which sacrificed the 7th and 9th wards and the Treme. Um, the Treme has recovered to some extent, and the ninth uh, ward is completely gone. To this day, it's just gone. Um, and since those wards contain most of black culture, that culture was completely lost. So that the New Orleans that's standing now is, you know, not, not anything like it would have been. I was wondering, once that huge influx of people from the South, hundred, more than 100,000 people start, do you remember that kind of first time as you began to notice the impact of that culturally, whether it was food or music or ways people were speaking? Like, did it yeah. kind of come on your radar at that point? Yeah. We were... Absolutely, my husband, who was a third generation Californian, and I was in my first generation of California. Um, we were so much like all the people around us that what racism there was, because there certainly was racism, um, was acceptable. And when, when the war ended, we had a 20-year period of adjusting to this new population growth that had expressed itself during that period. And it wasn't until 20 years later that the, the Panthers and all the rest of it began to pop up. They were the children 
of the people who've been brought here. So that they led the social revolution that followed. And it, that social revolution came swept across the country. And at this point is now evident all over because we've all changed. Um, but at that time, the 60s were were the focal point of that that entire revolution. Um, this is where the first student response, which was ushered in by, by Mario Salio, um, happened. This was the where Vietnam the War. Huh? to the Vietnam War. Yes. Yeah. So that that had that started. It. So that we have been in a constant state of, of, of renewal ever since. And so we still are, are way out ahead of the rest of the country. But I don't know. I don't know to what extent this is happening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. She so inspired us that we bought her memoir, Sign Her Name to Freedom. The biggest lesson we took away from her was that history is written by the people in the room doing the remembering. She has made it a habit to be in that room, but she has taught us that it's important for all of us to be aware of all strands of our history, not just the f physical remnants. In fact, it is most important to seek and learn about the parts of history that are not so apparent. While we love the beauty of the national parks, that we visit, we are also impressed by the history we have learned along the way. We saw a quote from Betty Lutzowskin that summed this up so perfectly. We have created a system of national parks where it's possible to revisit almost any era in our history. The heroic places, the scenic wonders, the contemplative places, the shameful places, and the painful places. In order to own that history, own it, process it, so that we may begin to forgive ourselves in order to move into a more compassionate future together. Thank you for listening. Again, please remember to check out and support SIAT. You can find more info on our episode page. We would love your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or message us on our social media accounts. We are Expedition National Parks on Facebook and Instagram and Expedition NPS on Twitter. Thanks to Jason Shaw for the music. And as always, follow the inspiration of the Junior Renjo motto, keep exploring, learning, and protecting. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.